I'm a deacon at the church, and I lead music, um, but my day job is a historian, in case you were wondering what that was about. So I teach history and write and study history at SMU. That's my day job. But um, I love being here with you. Um, I love the Bible, and I'm really glad that I can be here to share with you tonight. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Our series this semester is on Jesus heals, right? Jesus heals. And so we're actually going to read a story, two stories tonight that come one right after the other. So y'all read with me. If you don't have it, please listen along. Luke chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So I don't know if y'all have been paying much attention lately, but there's been a lot of politics going on. Um, Maybe that's reached your ears. Um, We won't talk much politics today, but one of the things that I find most striking if I try to step back as best I can and kind of look at what's happening politically, which is sort of part of my job and part of my interest, is that I find that sort of no matter where people fall on the spectrum, from really far on the left to really far on the right, often what you can kind of see behind people's arguments, behind people's um, goals, is this desire for power, like to be the one in control. And usually those arguments aren't put out so uh, boldly, right? Like, do what I want because I want to be in control. Usually it has more to do a little more subtly with who deserves to be in control, right? Like, you should elect me because I'm nicer than the other guy. Or, you know, uh, Christianity has been the main religion in this country for the longest time, so you should elect Christians. Or... Uh, you know, this group pays more taxes, so you should listen to us more. There's kind of this, listen to me because I deserve it, right? Listen to me because I've earned it, right? Do what, do what, the country should do what I say because I, my voice and my people's voice 
are a little bit more important than yours. Jesus is not really about that game, right? This game of who deserves it more, who has more power, who has more say, who's greater and who's lower, um, who we should love and who we shouldn't. And we know this because Jesus tells us these things in his Sermon on the Mount. You all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Possibly the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. You can find it in Luke chapters 5 and 6. And you can find it in Matthew's chap- Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And one of the most famous things about that sermon is that Jesus gets up and he starts talking. And he kind of flips all these normal things on their head. Things that people think are the way to think about things. He says things like, oh, you've heard it said this way? Actually, it's this way. Right? So he says things like, oh, you think it's important to be rich? Actually, I bless the poor. Oh, you think it's important to be strong? Actually, I bless the meek. Um, Oh, you love your friends? I mean, that's great. I'm telling you, you should love your enemies. He says these kinds of things, flips them on his head. And after this sermon, right, he gives this very famous sermon really early in his ministry. The very first thing he does, walks off that mountain, and then we get to the passage we just read. He walks off and walks to this town called Capernaum. And what does he do? This is going to be the whole time, isn't it? I'm going to be going up and down. Um, So uh, the first thing he does is he heals a strong person, right? He heals the strong. He heals a centurion servant. Now, what's a centurion? If you all, maybe you're aware of this or not, but in the New Testament, when you're reading the Gospels, it all takes place kind of in Jerusalem and Israel, but who's actually in control over all things at that point? Like, who's the power in the world? The Romans, right? The Roman Empire. And Israel is under the Roman Empire. And they can do their own things. They've got their own local leaders, but they all answer to Rome, right? So this is kind of like, uh, you know, if, by the way, if you ever expect me to teach and not say something about American history, you're, it's a bad expectation, right? So <clears throat> this is like an early American history when you have the American colonies and they're all doing, Massachusetts is doing its thing, Virginia's doing its thing, but who do they answer to? The British Empire, right? And if the British Empire sends soldiers, you have to do what the British soldiers say in your colony, right? This is kind of what's happening in Israel. There are Roman soldiers, in this case sometimes called centurions, and they have power, they have clout, they have influence, they have swords, right? And you do what they say because they are an agent of the empire. And when Jesus walks into this town, messengers arrive on behalf of one of these centurions. Right? You remember this in the story? He's walking. And all of a sudden, some Jewish leaders actually arrive. And they say, hey, we're here on behalf of the centurion. And um, what do you think? Does this centurion deserve for his servant to be healed? Right? Now, he might, perhaps you might think he would because he knows he's a powerful person, right? These Jewish leaders actually seem to think that he deserves it, right? What are the kinds of things they say? Do you remember what they say to him when they come to Jesus and they say, hey, this servant is sick. Here's why you should heal him. He loves his country. Yeah, he loves his country. He's a, he's a, he's a good patriot. What else? He built the tabernacle. Or yeah, the synagogue, right? He built the Jewish place of worship, right? So he, he, he built this thing. He's really important. He's a nice guy, basically. You should do it because he deserves it. Right? He, I mean, he's not one of those bad centurions. This is a good guy. Have you ever said to yourself when you're in a situation and you needed something, I deserve this. 
Like, I deserve that grade because I worked hard for it. I deserve that guy or that girl because the person they're interested in is a jerk and I'm better than they are. I deserve that spot on the team or that spot in the play or whatever because I'm better or I worked harder or I think that it would be better that way. Have you ever said that in your own heart or out loud? I deserve it. Give me mine. That feeling, that thought is always based on a perception of your own strength, right? Deep down, you're saying, I'm better than that person or I've done enough and therefore I deserve for Jesus to do this thing for me or for this person to do this thing for me. But when we come before Jesus, like the messengers of the centurion, we should really realize pretty quickly that our perception in that way, it should fade away really fast. Because what do we deserve in front of Jesus? That's not rhetorical. That's nothing, right? I don't deserve, I, what, what strength do I have? What skills do I have? What knowledge do I have standing before Jesus? Nothing. I have nothing, right? So this is how this story sets up. And then some other friends of the centurion arrive. While these Jewish leaders are trying to convince him how good this centurion is, some other friends arrive. And they're bringing a message straight from the centurion himself. And here's the message. Jesus, don't come. You're too great. You don't need to come. Hey, I know what it's like. I'm a soldier. I have people. I tell them what to do. And they do it. Right? I want a latte. They bring me a latte. Right? I want them to go and do some exercises. They go do some exercises. And he's like, I know you're like that too, Jesus. And so you don't even have to come into my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Does anyone remember what Jesus, what it says about Jesus? When they said that, what did Jesus, how was, what was his reaction? Do you remember? It's okay if you didn't pick out everything. He said that he had great faith or something. Yeah, here's the phrase out of verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Um, Hebrews chapter 12 says um, that, uh, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw aside every weight which hinders us and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race with endurance, set before, the race set before us with endurance, right? Uh, and then it calls Jesus um, the author and perfecter of our faith, right? So you're going to run this race. With Jesus set before you. He's the author, right? So he made your faith, right? Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith, it's not yours. Jesus made it. And he's the perfecter of your faith. So what little faith you have, how is it going to grow? Jesus is going to make it grow. And that guy, Jesus, says of the centurion, wow. He marvels at his faith. And he says... No one in Israel has even had something like this. This is the only time, by the way, in all the Gospels that Jesus marvels at someone else. Right? There's lots of marveling at Jesus. This is the only time that he marvels at someone else. And what does he marvel at? Does he marvel at the centurion's position, at his power, at how many people he can tell what to do? Apparently, he can just tell people to run and go do stuff, and they do it. There's two groups of people who do that right in this story. He doesn't marvel at any of that. He marvels at the centurion's faith. 
And what is faith but submission, right? His faith is so great because he's submitting to Jesus's power. And so Jesus says, this is amazing. Uh, I'm going to heal him. And he heals the servant of this strong man. And he heals him by faith. And he heals him by his own mercy and his own power. Right? So in this first story, you have essentially a representative of one of the strongest people there could be. And Jesus heals this strong person, the representative of the strong person. And he does it by his own power. Then there's a second story right after this, right? He, they leave this town, Capernaum, and they travel south. And they're traveling toward Jerusalem, and they're going to this town called Nain. Now, in this time, uh, towns weren't really like they are today in the same way. So towns typically, if they were of any size at all, they might build some kind of wall around them as some sort of protection against people or against wild animals. And so you're walking on roads, and then there would be like towns that were sort of very visible, like that's where the town begins, because there's the wall. Okay, so they're walking to Nain, and outside of the wall, they see people coming out of the city, and they see a crowd coming. And Luke tells us that Jesus sees a widow and um, her son. Okay. Now, <clears throat> how would they know this, at least up front? How might Jesus recognize this? So if there's a funeral procession, First of all, the funeral procession in these, this day is always going to be bringing the person who's died outside of the city because it was a matter of cleanliness and the law. You didn't bury people or touch people who had died inside the city. Bring them outside the city. And generally, what is going to happen is the mother is going to be at the front of that line. And then any immediate family are going to be right behind her or with her. The person who's died is right behind that on a, they call it a beer in here, but it's like a stretcher, B-I-E-R, not a... That, yeah. Um, and then the crowd, whoever else is with them, is in the back, right? So you got mom, family, the person who has died, everyone else, okay? But in this case, he knows that this person's a widow. Why? Because he sees a mom, and then he just sees a stretcher. There's no one in between, okay? So at first, even the people who are with him, the crowd who's with him, knows whether this person has lost her husband or her son, she's now alone. She's by herself. She's in a really weak and vulnerable place. In fact, often if you read throughout the law, the New Testament, the first five books, sorry, Old Testament, first five books of the Bible, um, or even throughout the New Testament, oftentimes when the Bible wants to kind of describe the weakest people in society, there's like a triad that it brings out. And it's the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Right? The immigrant, the orphan, the widow. Or sometimes it, we have the term alien instead of immigrant, but it's immigrant. So you have these three groups, these three people that kind of represent the weakest and most vulnerable people in society. What, what, makes a, what makes an immigrant a weak person in society? Like what puts them in a weak position? They're in a strange land. They're in a strange place. I mean, like today, like what if you have, maybe you have a friend who's an immigrant, like what makes it harder for them? They don't speak language. They may not speak English. It's a new place. Maybe they don't have extended family, right? They're not in the same kind of position that a native-born person is. What makes a person who is an orphan in a weak position? No family. They may not have family at all. Someone to go home to, right? Like, may not have that. It's certainly not a natural place. And then a widow. What puts a widow in a weak position? 
Yeah, they've, they've lost, they had a husband and they've lost that husband, right? And especially in this day, okay, it's different. You know, today things are a little different in that you see it's sort of much more common to see like men and women equally kind of working out in the workforce, making money. Um, but in this day, that's just not the same kind of case. In many, many cases, women were highly dependent upon the men and particularly the families that they married into. And if you lost the people around you, you're, le- you're left with maybe nothing. Right? And now we find that this is a person who's left by herself. Even her own, and probably only son, has died. So Jesus looks ahead, and how does he feel about her? He says he has compassion on her. And he goes up, and what does he do? What's the action he takes? He raises the son from death, right? Now, first thing he does is he actually walks up, and he touches this stretcher kind of thing, right? Which is sort of like a throwaway line in here, but it's probably would have freaked a lot of people out because if you did that, you're not supposed to, in the Old Testament law, like you're not supposed to touch any kind of dead body or anything that's touching said dead body. This stretcher is sort of constructed in a way so that you're like multiple degrees removed from the body, okay? So if you touch it, you become unclean. You have to go outside of the city. You gotta do this whole purification thing. Jesus reaches out and touches it. And so... It's possible that in a normal situation, such a person might actually have to be cut off from the group. Um, They have to go purify themselves before they can even come back into the tabernacle. But this doesn't happen with Jesus for all kinds of really cool reasons. (laughs) Uh, Jesus is not under the law in the same way we all are because Jesus made the law and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And when he comes and touches this beer and when he speaks, there's no dead body anymore because he's alive. That's pretty amazing. He's not infected or um, he's not infected by the death because he overcomes death. Right? He's not made uh, dirty or unclean by it because his word and his touch actually purifies and makes clean. Uh, in that last story we saw, this is the first and only time Jesus marvels at another person's faith. Here, this is the very first time that's recorded in the Gospels where Jesus raises someone from the dead. It certainly won't be the last. It's just the first fruits of it, right? Um, Which would culminate in himself. So in the first story, we see Jesus heals what kind of person? A strong person, right? Like maybe the strongest kind of person in that society. And then immediately after leaving that town, he goes to another town and he heals who? A weak person. Someone who has nothing on their own. And here's another interesting thing. The centurion expressed amazing faith, right? Like Jesus himself marvels at the centurion's faith. What faith did this woman or that son express? It's a trick question. None. There's no expression of faith here, right? He heals the centurion, he marvels at his faith, and he heals them. This powerful person who has great faith out of his mercy, out of his power. And then immediately after that, Someone on the other end of that, no faith, sorry, no, you know, um, no power. And the, de- the dead boy has no f- faith, right? Because he's dead. He can't express faith. And Jesus still raises him up. And he does it in the same way, by his own power, by his own mercy. Now I'll do a last section here before, uh, before we break up. So first he heals a strong person, and then second he heals a weak person. And I want to bring these together, um, and this could be hopefully be part of your discussion. But there's something that these have in common. 
and that Jesus is doing here and that Luke is doing here in his writing. And that's that Jesus heals the outsider. Okay, Jesus heals the outsider. Um, if you've got your Bibles or your apps, open up to Luke chapter 4 with me. Just turn back a couple of pages or to swipe down a couple of times. Okay, Luke chapter 4. Right, so this is just three chapters earlier. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I'm, I'm going to read a bit. It's a, it's a little bit long, but it's worth it. We're going to start in chapter 4, verses 14, and go all the way to 30, okay? And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel, and in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Okay, Jesus is inaugurating his ministry here. Like, this is basically the first thing he does, okay? So imagine the presidential inauguration happened like a month ago, right? It's the first time that the new president or the incoming president is going to speak to the nation. So it's kind of a big deal. It's a big ceremony. You're like, what are they going to say? This is going to set the tone for their presidency. Jesus does this. He comes and reads a prophecy from the Old Testament and sits down, and there's two things he says. First, hey, that one that it was talking about, that's me, right? I, it's not talking about a prophet in the future. I'm the guy, right? And everyone marvels. Ooh, this is amazing. He's going to do some great things. And then he says something else where they don't expect him to go. And he says, also, I know you think I'm here just for you, Israelites, but I'm not just here for you, Israelites. In fact, some of you are going to reject me, and I'm going to go to other people as well. And then he refers to these two stories back from First and Second Kings, right? Um, if these had been the part of the game, it might have gone not as well, right? Uh, <laughs> the widow of Zarephath. Um, so he refers to these two stories, right? First of all, he says, hey, you remember back in the time of Elijah? There was this widow in Zarephath in Sidon. Now, um, Sidon was in uh, present-day... Uh, Lebanon, but what would have really piqued the Israelites' interest is that Sidon was the home of the most infamous woman in all the Old Testament, Jezebel. 
Now, you may not know all the story of Jezebel, but in our culture even, you know that that has a negative connotation, right? Like, you don't name your daughter Jezebel, usually, right? Evil queen, right, who tried to kill Elijah, terrible person. And he says, hey, you remember that there was a widow. There were all kinds of widows. There was a famine. People were starving all over the place. People were starving in Israel. But I sent Elijah to this widow, and she lived inside me. You know that place where your enemy lives? Those people you hate? I could have had him go to any widow, and I had him go to that widow. Oh, and also, you remember right after that, you know, Elijah had a prophet came after him. His name was Elisha. And lots of people were suffering from leprosy, this terrible skin disease. And when you do, they get cast out of the city until they're healed. And there were people all over Israel who were suffering from leprosy. But you know who I sent Elisha to? Not an Israelite, not a priest. I sent him to Naaman the Syrian. Who are the Syrians? Enemies. And interestingly, Naaman is a military leader. The people didn't like that very much. What did they do when he said that? Yeah, they tried to lynch him. Y'all know what a lynch mob is? Right? It's when someone takes justice into their own hands. Right? About a hundred years ago, about seven miles that way, middle-aged black man was pulled out of his jail cell and taken to downtown Dallas and hung from an arch. Uh, without a trial, without a jury, or anything like that. That's called a lynch mob, when you take justice into your own hands because you're really upset, and you go and kill somebody. That's what they're trying to do to Jesus. They say, um, we don't like that. You're supposed to be here for us. So they take him out, and I always laugh when I read this. I know it's not like the punchline isn't great, but they take him out to the hill to throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. And I'm just imagining the crowd, and it's like one of those cartoons where they pile on each other, and it's like, where'd he go? I don't know. Jesus is gone. Um, he gets away. Why are they so angry? Here's the point of this. What are they so angry about? Who did they expect Jesus to come and take care of and heal? And some of these probably expected him to deliver them from Rome. Okay? But he says what? Actually, some of you aren't even going to, you're going to reject me and I'm going to go to these other people. Why does that upset them so much? Why would that upset you so much? If you thought someone was coming for you to do what you wanted them to do, and you and your family have been waiting for it for a long time, and that person came and said, actually, it's not just for you, it's for them too. You might get a little upset, right? You might say, that's not what I expected. Um, I'm an Israelite. My heritage goes way back to Abraham. I can trace my lineage all the way back. I'm of this ethnicity. I'm of this status. Do you know who my parents are? That kind of thing, right? And Jesus is upsetting all of that. He looks at that and says, that's garbage. And Paul actually calls that garbage in the book of Philippians. Paul says, hey, I'm a great Israelite. I'm the greatest you can imagine. And that's garbage, that's trash. That's dumb. Your heritage won't save you. Your ethnicity won't save you. Your parents, no matter how important they are, or how rich they are, how much power they have, it won't save you. Jesus saves that happens in Luke 4. And then just a few chapters later, he goes in Luke 7, what we read, and what does he actually do? He reenacts this exact thing. He tells them this story about, hey, way back in Elijah and Elisha's time, I healed a widow and I healed this uh, soldier. And then the next thing he does after his sermon is he walks to a couple towns and what does he do? Heals a soldier's servant, heals a widow. He's reenacting exactly what had been happening in the past and saying, I'm the guy 
who's here to fulfill all this. I'm not just going to say it. I'm going to show it to you. And he goes and does those things. Both of these people in Luke 7 are in some way could have been considered outsiders or even enemies. Um, but they're not the kind of person that you normally just pick and say, that's the person that's going to save the world. Right? The enemy soldier. The weak widow. But that's who Jesus picks. And that's who Jesus heals. And he says, now you're an insider. Okay? You were outside, but now you're inside. You were an enemy, but you're not anymore. You're my friend. Right? You were alone, but you're not anymore. Because I'm healing that, and I'm making you one with me. So here's the conclusion. Jesus heals anyone. These teach us that Jesus heals anyone. Whether you're strong or you're weak, you're wise or you're foolish, you're male or female, you are straight or gay, you're athletic or klutzy, you are a success or you're a total failure. If your life is like got it all together or you feel like your life is falling apart, Jesus saves anyone, heals anyone. And he also said in another way, heals everyone. He heals Jews and Gentiles. He heals insiders and outsiders. He heals all those people around you and he heals you. There's no group, there's no person uh, who is outside of Jesus's purposes to heal the world. And that includes you and whatever you're going through right now. Okay, we're gonna pray and then we'll break up into four groups as we've been doing lately, middle school and high school boys, middle school and high school girls. It looks like the rain has held off so we can kind of spread out. But let me pray and and then we'll do that. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are with us and that you do not measure our worth before you offer yourself to us. And I pray for our whole group tonight that your word would pierce our hearts um, in a new and special way, no matter how many times we've heard it or said it, and that we would trust that you're here uh, with us in your word and you're here with us in our hearts to heal uh, the broken and that there's nothing we've done I know where we've been. That's too far outside for you to bring us back. I pray you give us good conversation. Help us to encourage one another um, in this time. Amen.